the whole quality of the night affords us a different way of being. Quite naturally, we still our mind. There is something contemplative, something that's very, you know, quietening about the night, just as a whole different vibe. To develop that sort of aspect of mystery um, in the world, you know, I think it's where enchantment happens. You know, this sort of forgotten spell casting that the night does particularly well. It's quite a sweet elixir of enchantment. Welcome to the open air. This is Jesse Raisler, and you're listening to Open Air Humans, stories of how people have found a happier, healthier, more human life outdoors. On today's episode, an invitation to go on a nocturnal excursion and experience the enchantment of nighttime in the forest. My guest Chris Salisbury is the author of Wild Nights Out, The Magic of Exploring the Outdoors After Dark. It's an inspiring hands-on guide for adults and kids of all ages to go out adventuring after sundown. In this pupil-dilating discussion, Chris shares how to attune our senses to the dark, what manner of fascinating creatures we might find in the night, and how the dark can act as mental and physical medicine for the modern human. This episode is brought to you by The Open Air Outpost, a new nature escape with luxury tiny cabin and glamping options just two hours northeast of the Twin Cities. It's a place where we made it easy to put into practice all the wisdom we've learned from the guests on this very show. You can even book unique experiences with some of them as part of your stay. Learn more at openairoutpost.com. Without further ado, you mentioned the enchantment that happened. You just started doing these walks and then over time became more comfortable. I'm curious if there's any specific moment that things started turning for you or if there was something that really enchanted you to say, you know what, I want to I wanna not only do more of this, but I want to get more people out there to experience this. Tell me about the specific moments of enchantment that inspired you to do that. I do, I do think it's been an accumulative journey rather than a, an incident, mm. you know, a kind of revelation, you know, a specific, you know, event that, that shifted the trajectory. There are moments that will always um, be remembered. That moment of a, you know, a, an exquisite moonrise, you know, where one is afforded a horizon on the east and just that beautiful intimacy of a moon you know, just eclipsing the the horizon and a shared moment of course even deepens that you know a whole group experiencing something like that you know those moments are sweet or a um you know a um a creature you know emerging some uh, owls coming in you know um or a particular fine display of you know bats at night um glow worms um you know, these little discoveries that we do on these night walks of the uh, mysterious invertebrate world, making all sorts of, you know, new encounters with things that don't even have names. They've got lots of legs or wings or, you know, antennae, and they are fascinating little critters that, for the most part, people haven't come across before. That sense of discovery. Because the night is also so hidden, 
with a little bit of torchlight every so often. Something is revealed in quite a sort of theatrical way. It's like a sort of theatre spotlight, you know, revealing something. Um, and even though these things are small and they're uncelebrated, you know, for the most part, they've got these extraordinary narratives, you know, these life cycles that make some very compelling storytelling and help to sort of build that relationship. So even the sort of, you know, even the unproductive nights, windy nights, rainy nights, you know, on those sort of spring and summer and autumn evenings, you know, you could always rely on this crazy cast of invertebrates, <laughs> you know, to deliver. Well, I want to I want to get into and explore that crazy cast even more specifically. But before we do, I find it interesting. You mentioned that this is more of a an intimacy that developed over time. And it, and it reminded me of the fact that I think a lot of people don't know what what they can experience in the night because they don't take the time to let their eyes adjust like in a similar way it takes a longer time and and when you wrote this it's like one of the first things in your book that I go like yeah I've actually never just been in the dark for you know like you say up to 45 minutes um, because your eyes are truly adjusting and any artificial light can really change your perception can you talk a little bit about that just like how things can appear quite differently when you do actually let your eyes adjust and what the appropriate way and amount of time to do that is. Yeah. I mean, it's most pronounced in, in kids, you know, and younger kids, say a primary age sort of child um, who's unfamiliar with this sort of thing on camp. You know, it's dusk. You can see perfectly well, but these kids, they'll be putting on torches. I can't see, I can't see. And it's almost like we've been culturally kind of, um, you know, misinformed or something <laughs> about, actually having quite good night vision. Yeah. Um, now, by and large, when we encounter the dark, generally, we're, we're encountering it after coming out of a brightly lit room. Right. <clears throat> and, of course, it's the night can be blacker than it actually is. But as you say, you know, with acclimatization, our kind of night eyes adjust over 40 minutes or so. And then suddenly all the nuances of the night start to be revealed. Um, so we can see much, much better or, you know, we're out already and dusk falls and darkness deepens. And again, without the natural, uh, unnatural light in our eye, we can see, you know, perfectly well at night. I'm not saying that the darkest nights when there is no moon in the sky and there's cloud cover and you're under the trees, <laughs> you know, it's pretty challenging to move around on those nights, you know, when literally you can't see your own hand in front of your face so there are you know it is possible to experience you know deeper dark and struggle you know to navigate but you know it's about acquaintance if you know what's out there if you know what to expect then you know you're not going to be stopped or be afraid so that's why i'm encouraging people to step out for a little longer adjust and then see what you can see that's great so let's say someone wants to go out you know, for the first time, they haven't done this before. Um, you know, letting your eyes adjust is is a huge part of that. What else, what other advice, like what do you recommend for people going out on their first journey? How do you prepare for this? Yeah, well, a practical, you know, advice is to be warm, dressed up warm so that you're not suffering. Sometimes when people go camping and they step out into the outdoors, they almost half expect to suffer some physical, you know, hardship. No need. Um, so get yourself warm. Um, the security and safety of a light in your pocket, a torch, um, and you know, with spare batteries, um, 
again is going to sort of furnish your resolve. Um, now, I would always take binoculars. Um, now, that's because I'm interested in wildlife, and it's surprising to many that you can see a little more with binoculars than you think. They are able to sort of funnel in what available photons there are, and you'd be surprised how much more you can see with a pair of binoculars. Mm. And, of course, you know, binoculars allow you to get a little closer to the night sky. So if you've got a clear sky and there are planets about or there's a moon up in the sky, wonderful to take a pair of binoculars with you. Um, and, um, you know, guess don't be overambitious. You know, a place you've scouted out during the day can be so disorienting by night. You know, it's a bit like a turntable, you know, thing happens and suddenly what you thought was familiar suddenly becomes by night very unfamiliar. Yeah. So, you know, I would urge against being over ambitious, you know, with a five mile hike, you know, into the dark, unless you really know where you are. Um, so, but there's no need, you know, because you go slow, you know, at night <clears throat> and there's plenty to sort of just potter about, you know, over a short, fairly short distance. Right. So don't, I mean, don't overdo it. I think is the, is the, is the, is the bottom line advice. Um, be warm, um, take a light. As I say, binoculars are great. Um, and, you know, in wildlife terms, of course, it pays to be a little bit informed. Maybe just gem up a little bit and what's in the area. What are you likely to, you know, come across? That's great. Um, well, once you do have sort of your your equipment, as it were, the things you want to do, you've done your research and you've let your eyes adjusted, take us into the night the night forest like as you as you see it and hear it and and you know i love how you describe using all of your senses in these in these moments and on these excursions um what's it like going out there take us through the senses and then i'd love to hear a little bit about like what you might experience that's right i mean you know if i'm kind of guiding i might well do a little bit of sensory kind of attunement you know, just before, if there's a threshold moment before entering, say, the forest, <clears throat> we might just pause on that threshold and just begin to put some attention into our senses. So, um, you know, I'll invite people just to stop still and, of course, listen and just start to reach out. Oh, what's the furthest sound you can hear? Um, what's the nearest sound you can hear? Um, you know, the, the night is quiet, so any sounds that uh, you're hearing kind of loom a little larger because they're more in isolation than the general kind of busyness of the day. So it's a lovely sense to focus on at night, particularly when our eyesight's not so strong and we're not so distracted. Um, our ears generally tell us where the wildlife are. We generally hear wildlife before we see it. So it's a case of seeing with your ears a little bit on a night walk. So that little moment just to sort of pause and tune into the hearing um, and appreciate how you can hear more, the less you are uh, moving and the less you are making noise. Now, at night, our eyes are switching over to these rod cells become very active. These are on the outside of your iris in your eye. So the inner part of the um, iris covered with these cone-shaped cells are what's seeing in colour by day. The um, rod cell um, are, are active at night and they're the ones that see in black and white mm. and they're the ones that are sensitive to movement. 
So, um, again, just sort of staring into the distance and becoming aware of, you know, what we can see in our peripheral vision and even doing some work with sort of, you know, arms outstretched and fingers to see, you know, ah. how easily we can catch movement. For example, there's night fragrance. It's a different sort of fragrance at night. So right. picking up the scents at night um, just by breathing in and out, you know, our own scents and any of, anything else in the air. But, I mean, all of this sort of these little pauses um, serve to just heighten our awareness and increase our chances, you know, of perceiving things at night. Mm. So, again, we might do a little work entering the forest, just practicing just, yeah, what's it like to move a little more cautiously and carefully. And it's fun, that sort of stuff. You sort of feel the, the, the kind of hunter. Yeah comes alive in you um so then it becomes this lovely gentle you know process of entering the forest and stopping every so often just to listen and obviously drawing your attention to any wildlife sort of sounds and there'll be mysteries of course uh which are always fun depending where you are in the forest the bigger trees you know heading for the taller bigger trees they're going to have owls in in this part of the world for example um the woodland edges you know, we're going to be quite busy um, with things like bats and invertebrates. You'll head in, explore different areas where there's sort of decomposing logs and things for some good invertebrate action or wherever there's water. Um, we'll play a little game with having a little tiny little torches, uh, which are a little activity I call glow worms, which is where we all go kind of hunting at ground level with these tiny little torches to see what we can discover. Um, so... It's kind of just like that, sinking into the different atmospheres and flavours, you know. There's usually a sit-down at a certain moment, and a, um, sometimes I light a little lantern and encourage everyone to just go and sit by themselves for a while, as far away as they dare, um, from the lantern. And it might just be for 20 minutes, but you get this sort of feeling of sitting on your own in the forest at night, you know. The lantern's blown out, so you really are just wrapped in this sort of, you know, nighttime experience. That's a big life experience for many. Yeah. I'm I'm curious, too. I love the idea of, you know, having a small torch and looking uh, down at the ground and finding, finding these invertebrates or, you know, near us different types of, of frogs or, you know, newts or... Um, these sorts of amphibious creatures what what do you like to look for you mentioned glowworms and i'm curious like what you what you often see or what you like to look for and if there's a moment there too if you're out with kids what you like to tell them about it you know where there's water where there's pools where there's ponds there's life life are plenty so there's always things to find skimming about on the surface <coughs> of the water particularly still water um and even puddles um, and then all these little critters that, you know, are uh, aquatic sort of invertebrates. Very rich environments, those. Um, and it really varies, look, just starting to look underneath rotten logs <coughs> for all sorts of things. And literally anything has a story to tell. <coughs> um, you know, kids will, will, you know, be very curious about, you know, what's scuttling about at night <coughs> and... Albeit the first reaction is, oh, you know, what's that? You mm -hmm. know, the job of the guide really is to start to tell the, tell the importance and significance of these things. You know, coming across a beetle like the, I don't know, the, the, the sexton beetle, for example, 
so-called because it buries the dead, quite literally. It flies around the forest at night looking for <laughs> dead mammals, particularly small mice and shrews and voles and things. And, um, you know, with its fine sort of sensitive antennae, it can pick up the very first sort of, you know, fermentation in a dead body. So then it then it flies down <coughs> and it buries it, literally digs the soil all around it. And if you, had, you saw a sort of speeded up film of this thing happening, you would see this little creature like a shrew just sinking down into the ground. Oh, wow. um, and the reason why it's burying it is because it wants to pre- preserve it as a food source for its, for its lava. Ah. So then it digs these radial tunnels going out like spokes in a wheel from this um, carcass. It lays its eggs at the end of these little tunnels. And it's all timed so that when the eggs hatch this dead body is reeking by that point so that <coughs> smell attracts the larvae who kind of scoop down the tunnels wow. and that's their first sort of food now you couldn't make this stuff up you can imagine <laughs> no that's incredible these invertebrates have these sort of life cycles i know and it's going on all the time wow. but it's very fruitful at night because of course they're avoiding birds at night uh, so okay, there's an awful right. lot of things about particularly in the you know the productive months and whether it's wood lice, you know, you're talking about, or harvestmen, or different sort of spiders, you know, there's, you know, it's all going on down there, and um, and kids get pretty damn fascinated, and can appreciate, you know, invertebrates for what, uh, you know, what they bring the ecosystem, of course, in that context, rather than just being, uh, it's a bug, you know, <laughs> right? Mm. Well, yeah, when you learn, I mean, what an intricate, amazing behavior of the, the, the sexton beetle. I had no idea, and I'm sure, like you said, those stories exist across all different parts of the animal kingdom. Are there any others that you love to bring up when, when possible? Whether that's, you know, I love, you know, listening to owls, and we were fortunate to have have one uh, nesting here. But I'm curious if there's anything. Uh, in one of the other animal kingdoms that have a similar story that you like to tell when you're out there? Well, you know, I mean, I'm I'm also allured by owls. I mean, in fact, Wild Wise's logo is an owl because <clears throat> owls show up all the time on these night walks. Mm. Um, so what I think is very interesting about owls is, you know, how wise they are perceived to be mm-hmm. <clears throat> between our two cultures and a lot of the world, you know, we sort of characterize the owl as a, as the wise owl, you know, right. as a bird that it somehow embodies wisdom. And I've ref, I have reflected on this myself. And, and I believe it's because, of course, the extraordinary capacity of the owls to navigate by night, right. to hunt by night, to effectively see in the dark, means for us, I think culturally anyway, we we um, endow kind of wisdom on the owl because it can see what we cannot see. Mm. Therefore, it must be wise. Actually, the owl is not just um, seeing its way. It has a different eyeball shape and it has a large eye socket. So it is able to gather more photons and it is able to see much, much better than we can. But it's actually also feeling its way through the trees. It's got these tiny hairs Mm. in its eye sockets that are super sensitive to the movement of air. And um, it's able to, with that subtle vibration also use this sort of feeling capacity oh wow and i mean between that attribute and and the silence you know of its feathers and usually at this point you know on a night walk i'll bring out an owl wing 
pass it around and people will feel the softness of the feathers. You know, it's mm. quite remarkable. Designed in a different way, perfectly for silent flight. Wow. So this thing coming out, you know, out of the night, you know, um, if you're a small mammal, fairly terrifying. <laughs> um, it's pinpoint accuracy um, and its hearing is legendary. So although we attribute the owl's, you know, eyesight with so much kind of um, um, so much heightened developed sort of skill we have you know actually to celebrate its hearing because an owl's eye ears are sort of slightly lopsided one is higher on one side of its head one is lower on the other side it's just a short little differential but it's critical for gaining what is like a grid reference accuracy in other words the first thing an owl does is listen just like I was encouraging uh, you to do at the beginning of a night walk to listen for those little sounds scuttling about on the forest floor. It's very still. It's using its ears and it's getting this grid reference accuracy on the forest floor as to where this little small mammal is moving. So that's its first kind of point. It locks on with its ears. Okay. and then uses its obviously silence light, uses its eyes, uses those little hairs to hone in and, of course, it's very successful in the hunt, um, the owl. So, yeah, you know, that's a you know typical kind of narrative from a classic, you know, um, nighttime dweller, denizen of the night, the owl. That's great. Um, and also, you know, beyond these stories you find in the animal kingdom or phenomenon that can be quite magical, one of the other things I wanted to ask about um, is bioluminescence or, or f- what's known as foxfire or what was once known as foxfire. You don't hear that term, at least in our part of the world as much. Um, but these things that glow. And I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about that as a phenomenon and then also how you like to 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 bring that up and, and show children and what you might withhold from <laughs> children in order to let them explore their imagination. When you come across something that's glowing on the floor, this um, rather poetic old English kind of name for it was foxfire. Um, but a more scientific name is bioluminescence, so that greeny bluish light that, that's found on sort of you know rotten pieces of wood, sticks and things. You know, it's it's not everywhere, it's just occasionally you come across it. And it's just one of those marvellous moments that engenders that kind of wonder and mystery and awe. I mean it's it's a playful idea, but sometimes you know it feels an explanation isn't necessary sometimes with certain age groups. It's a bit like, whoa, you know, what do you think that is? And just allow people's imaginations, you know, to flow forth. Because they'll come up with all sorts of crazy explanations, which is delightful. I mean, is even now a bit of a puzzle how it all works. It's like a fungal organism, um, you know, that the scientists don't, not really too sure exactly what it's about. It currently thought that glow is attracts insects at night ah. to that, you know, um, rotten log, and then they will bear fungal spores away. Ah, okay. Which, of course, increases the likelihood of, of re- reproducing. I mean, that's uh, you know, that's um, that's one explanation. And of course, we get it too, don't we? At um, in the sea. 
I don't know if you're yes. in your part yeah, of the world. Yeah, it's yeah. quite rare here around Britain, but occasionally on the right nights you get a similar sort of bioluminescence in the water of these little tiny little creatures that can pump out this little tiny light. And it's just, these are the moments of wonder. And, and wonder is the most underestimated sort of experience, I think. And in fact, I believe there's a bunch of um, European lawyers who are working to put... Uh, children's right to wander in a children's bill of rights oh as a sort gosh. of natural kind of birthright. That's incredible. That's I've never all, heard. All our children wow. should have an experience of, yeah, wonder. It's very, you know, not a lot's been written about it. It's not the easiest thing as an educator to facilitate, you know, make happen every time. But yeah. then there are just these moments of wonder, that revelation. It might be a sunbeam, you know, on a darker day that just lights up a particular, you know, whatever, bush, plant, flower, field of whatever. And, ooh, it's just that sweet moment that you can't orchestrate or this bioluminescence or it's a kind of full moon appearing behind the, you know, clouds or, you know, nature is full of these moments. Uh, and the more time you spend out there, of course, the more chance you get to fill your boots with these <laughs> gorgeous little moments of wonder. So I do think that bioluminescence is is just one of those things that you can always hope for coming across on a night walk. But, you know, you never know. Well, I think that was one of my first moments of wonder, at least in the in the nighttime, was seeing um, what we called uh, lightning bugs uh-huh. or fireflies, right? And they light up. Do you have those in, in your part of the world? No, we don't. Oh, okay. No. Oh, wow. I didn't realize that either. But yeah, we have, they're very plentiful here. And I feel like there were more when I was a child, unfortunately. I don't see as many. I still see a few. So I've been able to show my boys a few. But, you know, the magic of just seeing a bug, you know, the light blinks on and then it blinks off and it's like, oh, where did it go? And then it blinks on again and then it blinks off. And it's it's quite a game that we have with those here. But it is, it's that moment of... And it's wonder. not surprising, is it? I mean, no, of course not. Fed our imag- things like that fed our imaginations. Yeah. Cultivated a whole kind of, you know, perception, deeper perception around, you know, the other world and fairies. Yeah. And, you know, spirits and all of that. And it's like that's that's the other world that's talking through these beings at us, you know, to indulge us in our imaginative capacities. Feed it. We do have glow worms here, which are not fireflies, but there's a beetle here that is becoming also rare here. It likes the sort of species-rich sort of meadows of which there's a declining amount. But the female glows with this very bright, um, effervescent light, very green, um, and... It's her abdomen that she's lighting up. Mm. And what she's doing is she's trying to attract a male. And males are the ones that fly. So uh. they're flying around looking for a female. <laughs> she's lighting the way. But, of course, you know, with so much light pollution, you know, it's getting very confusing for that sort of a species. But to come across a glowworm is a similar sort of experience. There's the firefly that you're talking about. It's just magic. Yeah. Well, I think that's one of the reasons I was so called you know, to read your book and, and get out in the nighttime is is the capacity. I mean, it, in a lot of ways, it's a, it seems like a shortcut to wonder. Maybe that's because it's so novel to us because we spend most of our time outdoors in the daylight. And to get out in the dark, you see these things that you just go, wow. And I'm curious, you know, you write a little bit about this in your book. Just once you do spend some time, you know, outside and after dark, um, you not only have these moments of wonder, but over time, 
Why do you think the darkness is good for us? You talk about dark as medicine. What is that doing for us? If we weren't able to switch on an electric light when it got a bit dark, you know, clearly we're going to be very affected, you know, by the rhythms. Yeah. There is, of course, a um, biology here. Um, in other words, that there are certain cells in the retina that send a message to the brain to reduce the amount of, you know, melatonin released when, um, um, when, for example, we're exposed to LED lights or contemporary lighting systems. Mm. So um, there's a sort of natural process where a message would be sent to the pineal gland in the brain that, you know, light levels are declining. Mm. That pineal gland starts to release that melatonin into the bloodstream. Um, melatonin is a hormone produced by your body, helps control your sleep. Sometimes it's called the darkness hormone. Um, it dilates the blood vessels, body temperature cools, makes the body feel tired. You see what I mean? So there's mm-hmm. a, a physical biology, you know, an impact of the night that sort of starts to slow us down naturally you know, inviting us to rest, inviting us to sleep. But along with that is all that sort of more contemplative, you know, reflective qualities of the night. Our eyes aren't busy, you know, with all the diversions and distractions that uh, the daytime offers us. Our work is generally done, you know, and it's harder to do that work when the light levels drop. So in the old world, of course, um, apart from firelight, you know, we'd have to, you know, um, we'd have to stop the busyness of the day. Uh, as soon as we uh, learn to control light and flick on electric lights, gas lights as it started, and, you know, we could continue all the activity of the day. You know, we could extend the day <clears throat> much longer. So, you know, for 99.9% of our life on this earth, we've lived with the natural cycles and our biology is very adapted to that. Mm. So it's a... You know, it's a whole combination of things, I think, that just if we allow it, you know, if we allow ourselves to marinate in the nighttime, we really notice, you know, the different qualities that it brings out. And I'm going to suggest also that there's a natural habitat as well for things like our imagination, because we can start to project it, it becomes very active at night. Yeah. It's almost like it's a blanker screen on which we have to project things, which is why you get that's the time of day when stories are told, mm. for example. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, and our imagination is activated. So, you know, there's a lot in it. Yeah. I love that. Um, David White talks about, you know, the nighttime giving you a horizon further than you can see. So that's what he's speaking of, that imaginal realm. Oh, that's lovely. Well, I'm hoping our our listeners will take this to heart and, and get out there and do some some exploration after dark. And I was wondering if there was any favorite memory you have of, of uh, a nighttime hike, whether with your children or, or on a group you have or, or even a poem or anything you'd like to, to leave us with in order to encourage folks to get out there. Maybe I should offer up a poem. How would that be? Please. That would be wonderful. I mean, I did. I I was lucky enough to um, work with David White, the poet, um, a couple of times, and I took him on a night paddle, um, which he absolutely loved. And remembering that, he did allow me to quote his wonderful poem "Sweet Darkness" in my book. Ah. Um, 
So it goes like this. When your eyes are tired, the world is tired also. When your vision has gone, no part of the world can find you. Time to go into the dark, where the night has eyes to recognize its own. There, you can be sure you are not beyond love. The dark will be your home tonight. The night will give you a horizon further than you can see. You must learn one thing. The world was made to be free in. Give up all the other worlds except the one to which you belong. Sometimes it takes darkness and the sweet confinement of your aloneness to learn that anything or anyone that doesn't bring you alive is too small for you. Chris's book, Wild Nights Out, is available from Chelsea Green Publishing from any major bookseller. If you do venture out at night, take a moment to send us a note about your experience, or better yet, send us an audio file telling us the story of your excursion at openairhumans at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Open Air Humans is a production of Credo Nonfiction. See and hear more at credononfiction.com. Thanks for spending your time with us and sharing your life with us out here in the open air.